Welcome to episode 18 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. My name is Kenny, and today we have a recording from a lecture from Amber Cantell. She's the Director of Programs at Reforest London and is responsible for helping set strategic direction for the organization and developing new programs to increase tree planting in London. In this lecture, she talks about some of the fundamental implications of climate change and what our rapidly changing climate will mean for London's trees. For show notes and additional links, visit our website at humanistagenda.com. And now, on to the lecture. Thanks so much for having me out to speak. Uh, as Carl said, my name is Amber Cantel, and I work for Reforest London, and I'm here to talk tonight about climate change. Uh, I know he was saying that you know there's probably a wide range of uh, response in the room to climate change. I feel like I should warn everyone in advance. The last time I presented on this topic to my coworkers, the endorsement I got afterwards was it's better than birth control. So uh, happy <laughs> to help. But yeah, so we're going to talk about uh, climate change as it relates specifically to trees. And let's see if we can get this working. So uh, when you're talking about climate change, usually the first thing that gets brought up is polar bears. And this has been going on for decades. And this was a very conscious decision that was made by the environmental movement early on in the debate about climate change, that you wanted an iconic animal or something to act as sort of a mascot for the issue, you know, something that would draw people's attention. You know, climate change and um, polar bears seem like a good choice. Uh, they're fuzzy, they're iconic, people like them. And from a climate change perspective, they were an attractive choice because we knew they were going to be one of the first things really heavily affected by climate change. I have to say for me personally, I am not in love with the choice of polar bear as the mascot for climate change. Uh, and the reason for that largely has to do with an exchange I got to do in high school. So I had a fantastic geography teacher uh, at South here in London, and he uh, got a grant to allow us to do a student exchange uh, with an Inuit community up in a, a hamlet called Tuluyuak, which was super cool. So uh, we all bundled into increasingly tinier planes and finally found ourselves at Tuluyuak International. And when we got off the flight, you know, there's 15 of us. We were bundled in our parkas. We were all freezing. And we, we went into this little portable, which serves as the airport, and we got there. And the first thing we saw when we went in was this poster, just, just an eight and a half by 11 printout from uh, Microsoft Word that the guy behind the desk he prepared. There was a picture of a polar bear leaping in its teeth out and said, this is the land of the polar bear. Are you prepared? They are carnivorous. They will eat you. <laughs> and I appreciated that because as, you know, a teenager from London coming up to the Arctic, I appreciated that the guy behind the desk took the time to say, what is the single most important thing I can communicate to the people that are going to come through that door? And that's what I'm going to try for you guys to, to do for you guys tonight. I'm going to try to tell you what I think is the most important things to understand about climate change. And the first thing I'm going to try to convince you is that it is not, in fact, about polar bears. It's about trees. Now, you might be thinking... I think she mentioned she works for Reforest London, and maybe she's like a little bit biased. You're right, I am. Uh, and I should tell you guys a little bit about our organization before we get going. Uh, so we were actually founded by a group of citizens back in 2005. And since our founding, we've grown to become London's largest environmental not-for-profit. Every year, we plant or distribute about 20,000 different uh, trees every year, mostly native and some fruit trees. And we do that with the help of thousands of volunteers. Last year, we were leading or involved with uh, 290 events, which is one every 1.25 days. Um, so if you're at our office, it's usually a steady stream of panic. Uh, but we're really happy with the work we're doing. Our largest initiative to date has been the Million Tree Challenge, which is really straightforward. Uh, it's a project to plant a million new trees in the city. 
and we found, co-founded that with the city back in 2011. And that's actually a really cool project because if you look on Wikipedia for million tree initiatives, I think is the search term, it'll bring up this page and it'll say, you know, these are million tree initiatives for cities around the world to plant a million trees, and they include cities such as New York, Shanghai, Los Angeles, London, bracket Ontario. <laughs> and everyone's very surprised by that. But I think it says a lot about us as a community that even though we're a mid-sized city, we're actually punching above our weight, so to speak. Uh, that Londoners care so much about trees that we're able to undertake planting initiatives at that kind of scale. We're also the owners of the new Westminster Pond Center. So if anyone knows those seemingly abandoned buildings behind Parkwood Hospital, they are now ours. And we're very excited to be working on turning them into a new environmental center for our city. It's actually a post-World uh, War II veterans recovery village, and we want to really honor the heritage of the site as well. So it's going to be a really neat project, and I apologize. There was an image here. Oh, here we go. There's a few images. Sorry, these weren't showing up on my slides before. So I gave this presentation to Nature London, which is why there's a Nature London reference. Uh, they're helping fund part of the renovation on that site. That's us being on Wikipedia, beating out London, England for the first time in history. And this is one of the buildings that we're going to be renovating. So this is the Wellington Pavilion. Uh, it's a former community center, and we're hoping it will serve as a community center for London's environmental sector. So we're excited about that. I kind of get the impression from what I've heard so far you guys are going to destroy these, but I like having a few thought exercises when we're talking about climate change just to get rid of some false perceptions. So the first thing to think about with climate change is if we did an absolutely extraordinary job reducing emissions next year, if we basically treated it like a world war, we changed our energy patterns by 5%, dramatically reduced greenhouse gas emissions, would climate change get better, get worse, or stay the same the next year? Get better? Get worse? Stay the same. Okay, good, good, good. No one said get better, which is very rare. Uh, you guys are right. So it'll actually continue to get worse. And the reason for that is even if you reduce emissions by 5%, if you treat it as like there was 100 units of emissions and you reduce by 5%, you're still adding another 95 units next year. And you're going to do that year after year after year after year until you finally hit net zero. Net zero is the point where the amount of greenhouse gas emissions we're producing matches what the forests and the oceans can absorb. And actually, for various reasons, this is a bit more complicated, but it will actually go on even for a while after that. Things will get worse even after we hit net zero. On the topic of worst case scenarios, no. It's important to understand that even under the very best case scenarios people have been considering, we aren't expected to hit net zero until about 2070, and that's 52 years. So if we compare that to something like World War II, which was seven years, World War I, five years, the Great Depression, 13, or Donald Trump's presidency, only two so far, this is going to be a really long 52 years. There's talk now in the media about the need to try to do this under 12 years, whether or not we are capable of transforming our, you know, our entire economy and our energy patterns that fast is debate. I certainly know, you know a few years ago when the Paris Agreement was being struck, 2070 still felt quite ambitious. So we are in it for a long haul, and for most humans that are alive, this will be most of their lifetimes will be dealing with climate change. Next thought. Uh, what was the most devastating event to ever happen to life on the planet? I want everyone to picture in their minds the most devastating thing they can think of. So most people, if you ask them what's the worst thing that ever happened on the planet, this is roughly what they'll picture, which is the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. Now this was about 65 million years ago. And I hate telling people this because it's bad news, which is most of this presentation. This is the second worst thing that's ever happened to our planet. Okay? The asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs was not the worst thing to ever happen to our planet. The worst thing was actually what you were talking about. It's called the Permian Thermal Permian Extinction Event. Yeah, 
Exactly. And it was a climate change event. A lot of volcanoes went off over, compared to what we're dealing with now, actually a fairly long period. It was like 20,000 years. But the Cretaceous extinction event wiped out, I always have to double check the number on this. So the Cretaceous event, the asteroid wiped out about 75% of species in the world. The Permian thermal extinction event, the climate change event, wiped out 75% of all terrestrial life, and then 95% of aquatic life. So the worst thing we've ever faced as a planet has been climate change. Next thing, super simple, very important. Trees don't have legs. This has major implications. Historically, humans with nature, the thought is we will go, we will do our things, we will have our lives, and nature will go on in the background and be dancing away. It's fine, nature don't care, it's gonna be fine. This works well if trees have legs, like little Groot here. Does not work so well when trees don't have legs. This is a slide I really want to explain, and I'm sorry that it is such a mess. On the topic of many things that I don't love about the way we've approached climate change, one is how we've tried to communicate about it, which I don't think has always been super effective. But this is an important graphic to understand, and it's one of the most important you'll ever see. So with climate change, the United Nations has the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, and they've been doing research on this for decades. And to research climate change, they said, okay, let's imagine four scenarios. We're just going to look at four possible scenarios. And they're terrible names, but the scenarios are RCP 2.6, RCP 4.5, RCP 6, and RCP 8.5. These have been used as a standard over many successions of the IPCC reports. The 2.6, the 4.5, those numbers. What this represents is something in science called radiative forcing. And it's basically a measure of how good your greenhouse is. How inclined is your atmosphere to hold on to heat? 2.6 is your atmosphere does not want to hold on to a ton of heat. 8.5 is it's getting pretty toasty in here. So those are the four scenarios they consider. 2.6 is our best scenario. 8.5 is the worst they've considered. And I say the worst they've considered because it's not like the worst. The worst they've bothered to consider is business as usual. Business as usual is so bad, they did not want to contemplate something worse than business as usual. So 8.5 is as bad as we are hoping it will get. The numbers below are the expected increase in temperature for each of those ranges. So for our best case scenario, and this is one where if you see this zero line for the RCP 2.6 scenario and you see it crosses the zero line, this is over in 2070, this is net zero. So this is the only scenario where they think we would get to net zero and we'd get to it around 2070. If we did that, if we, if we work like mad and we reduce emissions like mad and we plant lots and lots and lots of trees, the temperature would only increase between about one and two degrees. On the upper end though, RCP 8.5, we'd be looking at between uh, three and five and a half degrees. That is going to be very, very warm. And worse for us here in Canada is because of where our country is located on the globe, because we're so far north, Canada is known to be warming at twice this rate. So Canada could be looking at upwards of 11 degrees of increase in temperature, which is very, very, very toasty. There's one author, and I'm, I'm sorry I'm blanking on his name, uh, but he was writing about the potential increase around the world. He said the difference between two degrees in warming and four degrees in warming is civilization. That, that is the scale of impact we're talking about. And like I said, the worst case scenarios even shoot far beyond that. So those are the four basic scenarios. That's how hot they think it could get. If anyone wants to get really depressed, you should ask me about oceans and a thousand parts per million carbon, but we will leave that for today. This is plenty to work with as it is. So what would this mean for trees? So this is the current distribution of sugar maple in North America, Canada's most iconic tree. 
The dark green is the core of its range, and getting towards the blue is where, you know, you'd see the odd sugar maple. This is its current range. Under the worst case scenario, potentially as soon as 2071, where sugar maple would want to be is northern Labrador, okay? That's how far sugar maple will want to move north. We'll do this with another one. This is tulip tree. It's an iconic Carolinian species. Uh, we're just in the tip of where it is here in Canada. This is, we're currently in the far north range of tulip tree. Current 2071. And in here you see that again, this is a species that will move very far north up into Quebec and up into Labrador. So it's quite a dramatic shift in range for what the trees are going to want to do. So basic message here is, you're hoping that forest is gonna run. Usually at about this point when you're showing people how far the trees have to move, the question that comes up is, can they just out evolve it? Is basically the X-Men our solution. We'll just develop new species and everything will be fine. We have had climate change in the like recent past in terms of geological time. We've had ice ages. The last glaciers just went away between the sort of 10 and 13,000 years ago. So we have seen species adapt to climate change and there's good data about how they have adapted. And generally speaking, when the temperature changes, plants adapt by moving up or down mountains or north or south on the ground. Generally, it's not evolution. That's not sort of their first choice. Evolution to turn into a new species usually takes between 50 and 100 generations. Most trees won't start producing seed until they're about 10 years old. Some are even longer. Sugar maple takes 30 years. So that means it'll take like a thousand years for a tree to create a new species of tree in response. So as good rule of thumb, migration is much faster than evolution. But then how fast is it? So we have data from pollen and fossils from past ice ages that give us a good sense. And as a rule, animals, this is not surprising, this goes back to trees don't have legs. Animals move much faster than trees. And unfortunately, actually, it's gonna get really weird because animals move so much faster than plants, they're, they're gonna be moving north really quickly and their food isn't gonna follow them. So it's gonna be a bad situation for animals as well but it's because plants are at the base of most of our food chains. Trees are among the slowest moving organisms on the planet. This is the net effect of not having legs. If a tree wants to move, the only way it can do is it can grow in place. It can wait till it's at least 10 years old, drop some seed over there, go over here, take another 10 years to grow up, drop some seed over there, repeat. This is not a good way to move. You certainly don't win any races. So no legs, long lifespan. Takes a long time for them to basically hit plant puberty. Not a good setup for trees. How fast a tree can move depends on its species. So Eastern Cottonwood, my favorite tree, has very light seeds. Those are the little cotton fluffs you see in summer. They can stay on wing for several days. So cottonwood can migrate very quickly because it's distributed by wind. Seeds that are heavier, so hickories and oaks, generally don't move as fast. But if you need a good rule of thumb, about a kilometer a year is considered a reasonable estimate of how fast a tree species can move north. If we go back to the tulip tree example then, so this is where tulip is now, that's where it wants to be, okay? It's about a thousand kilometers north. That means tulip tree needs to move between now and 2071, what it would naturally take a thousand years to do. That's not a good situation. That's about 20 times faster than tulip can move. This is another one of the UN's gifts to us. Uh, very neat diagram, and I'm gonna explain it because it's a little bit weird in terms of how it's set up. So this is a diagram that's been produced of how fast different kinds of organisms move. And just as you'd expect, things like butterflies, large mammals, 
uh, carnivores, like wildcats and things like that, they can move very quickly. So these bars are up near the top. On the right are the different kinds of scenarios that we have. So RCP 2.6, 4.56, 8 8.5 for global average, and then up top 8.5 for flat areas where it's harder to move. And the trees are over here. So I'm going to switch to zoom in on this a little bit. So the important takeaway here is the black bar is how, how, how she says, it's the median. And species that are below a line, one of the scenario lines, are not expected to be able to keep up. So this whole white bar represents all tree species on the planet. 50% of the trees would only be able to keep up with change at the absolute best scenario. If we manage to make net zero by 2070 and do the RCP 2.6 scenario, about half of our tree species should be okay. If we hit 8.5, there will not be a single tree species anywhere on the planet growing where it wants to grow. Every single tree on this planet will be in the wrong spot. We were talking earlier about polar bears. If you want a depressing exercise, go on Google Maps when you're home and zoom out a lot. Spin the little globe. See how many polar bears you can see? It's going to be none. You'd be hard pressed to miss all the trees. When you look at how much of the surface of our planet is trees and where they are going to be relative to where they want to be, it will not be a good scene. So rule of thumb takeaway here, you should not expect to out-evolve anything you cannot outrun. Next concept is a species is only as strong as its weakest link, not its strongest. So in California recently, there was a devastating drought. It went on for more than five years. They had 102 million adult trees die. So devastating across California. This led to, in part, things like the forest fire you saw in Paradise where basically the whole town burned down. And I mean, that's where we're getting now. Like Fort McMurray burned down, Paradise burned down. There's a trend here, or a theme at least, that's emerging and that we should expect to continue. What's important here is mature trees have a lot of roots and their roots can store a lot of water. So in general, most mature trees can last about four years under drought conditions. And it's in the fifth year where you start seeing what happened in California, where they've held on, they've held on, they've held on, and it's finally too much, and you lose a good chunk of your forests. But mature trees are your best case scenario. If a species is gonna reproduce, its seedlings have to survive. A mature tree might be able to go four years without water, or without a significant water, a seedling isn't realistically going to last four weeks. This is a spruce seedling, and I always like to talk about spruce trees because I think they're an interesting example. Probably everyone in the room knows spruce trees are sort of that iconic Christmas tree that you see. And if you go out and you're walking around London streets, you'll see a lot of spruce. You'll see Colorado blue spruce is a really popular one. What you will not find in your lawns is baby spruce trees. And you might not have noticed that before, but you know, you come out in summer and there'll be a million little silver maples growing everywhere and you'll be like, ah, where did they all come from again? I just weeded this. You won't find any baby spruce trees. Spruce is a more northern species in Canada. The mature trees grown in garden centers and watered regularly can survive in your yard. Typically, the babies won't. So if we're in a situation where all of our trees are in the wrong spot, it doesn't bode well for their ability to reproduce. And if they're not reproducing, they're not migrating. At the same time, we're going to be dealing with combined effects. So this is from the West Coast. This is the effects primarily of a mountain pine beetle. Mountain pine beetle is actually a native species of beetle to BC, and historically it hasn't been a huge problem. But with climate change, it's gotten warmer, winters are warmer, and the beetle is surviving in ways it hasn't before. So mountain pine beetle is expected to wipe out about 30% of 
of all the trees in BC, which is incredible. It's bigger than like the UK. And this is what some of the forests out there look like now. I'm guessing you guys can all see where this is going. You have massive amounts of standing dead wood. Drought generally leads to fire. So next question is, if you have lots of drought coming, and we know there's not going to be as much water, or rather I should say, if you know fire's coming, is there a chance that climate change will bring enough rain that it'll be able to offset the temperature increase? The short answer here is no. To keep up, rain would have to increase by 15% for every one degree of temperature increase. And in Canada, we're only expecting to get about 10% more rain for each degree. So there'll be less rain, more heat, and lots of dead trees. This is, I'm pretty sure I got this from a conference presentation I was at. If you want to talk to a really depressed group of people, talk to the people that work on wildfires in anywhere in Canada. They're not happy people right now. This is just a quick set map to give you a sense of how much more fire there will be. So this are, in, in, when they're studying wildfire, they look at how many days is it realistic that you could have a very severe fire, which is a crown wildfire where it starts going through the whole top. And basically, by 2081, anywhere that's red here, they expect there to be 500% more wildfire days. So we're going to get to the point where you're just going to see stuff going up in smoke. If anyone's been to BC in the last couple of years in summer, it's an experience. And the whole place smells like a campfire. It's incredible. And the thing is, there's a tendency when you're talking about climate change, even though we know it's a global issue, we picture our communities and our country and our provinces and so on. This pattern is not going to just happen in Canada. This will be happening in Russia. This will be happening in South America. Anywhere near the equator is going to see this kind of, or not near the equator, sorry, far from the equator. We'll see this kind of massive leap. So again, like I said, if you want to stress yourself out some night, zoom out on the Google map. And we have a lot of trees on this planet. And uh, that's the West Coast. To put some of this in scale, so there was a really, um, we might have had a bigger one since then, but in 2014, there was a really incredible wildfire up in, or set of wildfires up in the Northwest Territories. They had in one summer 2.8 million hectares of forest fire burn. And a single one of those, the Birch Creek Fire, was 100,000 hectares or more, which is twice the size of London. And when you're talking about fighting fires, you know, normally we think of like house fires and you get your firefighter out and you've got the water going and you're like, yeah, okay, there's hope. Like, you know, the house is probably gone, but you know, we'll save the neighbors. When you are talking about a fire that is twice the size of a city, it's hard to imagine how you can really effectively combat it over the long run. So likely what's gonna happen is there will be a lot of fire, wildfires and we'll have to let it burn. Trying to bring that a bit more local. So London um, is really unusual in that we get a ton of lightning. Like, I always knew we got a lot of lightning, but we get like a lot of lightning in London. So we get about 9,000 lightning strikes a year. St. John's, Newfoundland gets 38. So it's pretty electric around here. And for us in London, if we remain a hotspot for lightning strikes, now to be fair, our lightning pattern will probably shift a bit with climate change too. But if we remain a hotspot for it, we might see that our own natural areas might actually become at risk for wildfire. Historically, when people have been talking about saving trees and saving eco ecosystems, the focus has been on trying to maintain all your species. Whether it is uh, the elm trees after Dutch elm disease goes through, if it's the chestnut trees we lost in the early 1920s, that used to be the big question, you know, how can we save everything? And we are at the point now where the question has gone from, do we have chestnut trees to do we have trees? We are at a point where realistically, we could be looking at the loss of a whole type of ecosystem 
in many places around the planet. And we'll see a shift from forests to more savannas and grasslands, mostly because the trees just can't keep up. So what's the consequences of that? I feel like there could probably be like 20 slides just about the consequences, and I've only gone into a few here. The first, and in some ways probably the most important, is forests around the world sort of, and I, I hate to describe them this way, but it's kind of accurate, sort of work like a coal seam. They store a massive amount of carbon in a thick layer across the landscape. If you burn down that forest, all the carbon that was in that forest is released to the atmosphere. There is enough carbon in forests, including vegetation roots, dead wood, and the soil carbon in the top layer there, around the world to basically double the amount of greenhouse gases already in the atmosphere. So not only are we losing the trees, but by losing the trees, we will accelerate climate change. And potentially, things could be twice as bad just from burning the trees. You don't need to burn any more natural gas or coal or anything like that. There's enough carbon just in forests to dramatically increase climate change. Obviously, there's a lot of health impacts. I mean, you know, I've talked about heat-induced mortality, but again, like, we're at the point where there's cities burning down, so it's, it's, it's more than just heat at this point. We also know there'll be a lot of air quality impacts. If anyone's been out west in the last couple of years, it is hard to breathe in uh, BC. I had a friend that was in Northwest Territories the year they had their crazy fires, and they, the radio was like, we're giving you the air pollution index for the day, which is conventionally on a scale of 0 to 10. The index today is 20. We recommend not going outside. Um, but they were literally told to stay in their houses because the air quality was so bad. For emerald ash borer, so that's a bug that went through recently and ate ash trees across North America, there was one uh, health research group that looked into the effects on that. And just the death of the ash trees, they figure, led to about 30,000 extra deaths due to air quality effects. So you compare just losing ash trees to the volume of trees we could lose due to climate change, and it just gets really crazy. So. I'm a tree person, and there is an impulse, and there's lots of reasons behind it, but you know, there's a question, can we plant our way out? And people want me to say yes. People want me to tell you, just plant a lot of trees and it'll be fine. Everyone likes planting trees, it feels good. Short answer here though is not really no. For every, especially within an urban context. So in Canada, the amount of carbon each of us would produce effectively in a given year is about 140 trees worth. We don't really have enough space in London to have every Londoner plant 140 trees. You would be hard pressed to do it. And what I generally tell people is like, yes, there's a need to plant more trees. Like we should plant everything we can, it will help, but you aren't gonna solve the problem or get out of this problem just by planting trees. And usually when people tell you they can solve the problem just by planting trees, it's because they have something to sell you. So realistically, this is not a perfect solution. It can, tree, planting, tree planting can help, but you should not expect trees to save the day. And this is a problem we run into in the environmental field is people expect trees to save the day, and they forget that trees aren't going to be you know, necessarily the saviors for us against climate change. They will be its first victims. So short answer, no. So that begs the question then, what can we do? Okay, I cannot stress this enough, and some days, I wish I could just work on this as a subject because it's so important as well. We have to reduce emissions. People like doing things. It is, feels good. <laughs> People do though. Like It's nice to plant a tree. It's good to go out and do something. It's a lot harder to stop yourself from doing something. And this is a challenge we're facing as a species is that we have to not just think we can do more to solve our problems. Sometimes our problems involve doing less. So we have to find ways to reduce emissions. Sometimes that doesn't even have to mean less. It can just mean doing differently. 
You know, you can still get to work every day, but maybe you can take a bus instead of driving a car, things like that. But this absolutely is the most important thing we have to do, and it does have to be basically at World War scales. The amount and speed of emissions we have to do to meet Paris under what we understood a few years ago, now the numbers are looking worse, but in principle, to meet Paris, what we would have to do is reduce emissions by 5% every year, year after year through 2070. That's a 50% emissions reduction every decade for five decades straight. This is the most important thing. Don't let anyone sidetrack you from it. For trees though, what are we gonna do? So there is an idea called assisted migration and it's the idea that we can help move things to more suitable habitat. We do this sometimes already with species at risk. You know, if something's endangered where it is, we might, this is a bad example, but people move them to zoos. You do that with like tigers. You're like, well, we'll put it in a zoo and it'll reproduce and maybe we can get the population going back again. For plants, the idea is let's move it to zoo, but more move it somewhere north. Move it somewhere a bit colder where maybe it can survive. Historically, this has been really controversial and for good reason. Been a bit of a rock in a hard place situation. It's kind of a lose-lose, climate change. But the reason for this is we have a bad track record as humans when it comes to moving things. We have put a lot of things where they should not be. So things like purple loose strife, um, people remember that. Many of the diseases or pests that have affected trees very badly, Dutch elm disease, emerald ash borer, things like that are basically the result of humans moving things, whether on purpose or accidentally. So assisted migration has been controversial and considered risky. Traditionally, the way you want to save plants and save ecosystems is you're trying to restore everything to the state it was before Europeans got here is basically the idea. You know, try to make it more fitting what used to be here and historical. That worked in a static environment. It does not work well in a rapidly changing environment. And at the end of the day for climate change, we have to say which of these two risks is greater is the risk of moving things greater, or is the risk of drought and fire greater? And personally, if you give me a choice between you might contract this disease or you're gonna go 20 days without water, I would take the disease any day because nothing survives without water. But there's some caveats here too that sort of, I find help me psychologically, at least what I'm talking about, assisted migration, just because it has been so controversial. The first is to understand that species ranges, nat species ranges naturally change anyway. So. During a glacier, all of our tree species squished down into the states. And after the glacier, we came all the way back up. And actually, we have some species of trees that are still in the process of moving northwards after the last glaciers went. So hackberry is considered a good example of this. So it is normal for species to move south when it's getting cold and move back north when it's getting warm. And any American species we might be looking at bringing up north have been here before. They aren't new to Canada. They just haven't been here lately. They have, um, I can't remember if it's fossils or pollen samples, but from Antarctica, must be Antarctica, that have uh, like tropical ferns that they've found. So the planet has been hot enough that we have had luscious tropical plants at the poles. We will have warmer species plants here in Canada again. That yo-yo is natural. But what will be weird is because species move at different rates, and especially, like I said, animals much faster than trees, you're gonna get some weird ecosystems happening. And there will be mixes of species that we have not seen in our lifetimes. Yeah, this is, this is a bug actually we're on the lookout for. This is Asian longhorn beetle. It's an invasive pest that we're hoping very much does not come to London. It's gone through uh, the Northeastern United States in some areas. It eats 
many more species than emerald ash borer does, and there's a lot of fear of it, um, for good reason. But it's not here in London yet. If you see anything like this, call us, call CFIA. Um, they're the special, specialists in it. But the important takeaway from this slide is most of the species we really worry about when we're talking about, and then humans did this thing and it was not a good idea. Almost always, those species are actually from other continents. And the reason they become very invasive and aggressive is because they don't have anything that's used to competing with them in our area. So it's very rare that an American species becomes invasive in Canada, like something native to the States. So in the grand scheme of things, as long as we aren't bringing species from different continents, it will be less risky. There's always going to be a risk, but if we're talking about moving the species up and down that yo-yo, it's probably not as risky. With assisted migration, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there's basically three types. And again, it's, it's really a risk management tool, and it's all about how much risk you're willing to take on. The least risky thing is to have all your trees in the same range that they normally occur. So for instance, if I was going to plant some sugar maple here in London, I would say, okay, I'm still going to plant sugar maple in London where it grows naturally, but I'm going to go down to Indiana and grab some Indiana sugar maples and bring them up here because they're still sugar maple growing in sugar maple range, but they're ones that are used to a bit hotter weather. And if we bring them up, maybe they'll be adapted. So that's considered not very risky because you're taking sugar maple from somewhere it already grows and moving into another area it grows that just happens to be a bit colder. Assisted range migration is when you just push the envelope a little bit. We're really inclined to do this in Ontario with Carolinian species because there's so many beautiful ones. So a lot of times what you'll do is you'll take a species and you'll just put it a little bit outside of its range, like 100 kilometers, it's not far, you're just you know pushing it along a bit. That's considered sort of medium risk. And then the greatest risk is long distance migration, which is where you're playing leapfrog. You're saying, Hey, Florida tree, I feel like you belong here now. Why don't you give it a shot, see how you like London. It's basically the same humidity. Uh, and that's considered, God, I hate summer here already. I'm like, if it goes 11 degrees warmer, I'm out. I'm going to move to Alaska. Um, and that's considered pretty risky. You can also mitigate the risk involved in, in species migration or assisted migration by what kind of stock you work in. So if you're moving entire plants, there's higher risk that it will have a bug or an, in, like an insect on it than if you're just moving seed. So you can sort of minimize risk that way as well. But there's an important caveat to this, you know, and going back to the idea that humans love doing things. You know, I can come up here and I can tell you like, yeah, we'll just move some trees and that'll help. And I, and I do think assisted migration can help, but assisted migration is not a perfect solution. And it's not just because we can't plant enough trees, but also because the climates we will have in the future do not necessarily exist yet we might not be able to find a perfect analog for the climate we are going to have. And that is because, you'll have heard about it a lot in the news, climate change involves greater extremes. So I don't just need trees that can handle hotter summers, they still have to be able to handle periodically brutal winters. And that is a combination that is hard to find. So there's some hope that, you know, if you have London-based sugar maple that's really good with winter, or maybe even something from up by Ottawa, and you get some ones from down in the States and they cross, maybe we'll find sugar maples that can handle both. But right now, the extremes represent a real challenge. There, is, there generally aren't perfect matches for what we are going to face. There are lots of people working on this. Some provinces actually have been really progressive, BC and Alberta notably, probably because of the importance of the forestry industry in BC, I think, is probably a driver. But Alberta's actually set their own transfer guidelines. They said you can go, you can plant trees from 200 meters lower, 200 meters higher, because they know it'll be warm if you're going up and down slopes, or you can move two degrees northward, so that's good. 
And here in Ontario, Sudbury is actively looking at doing assisted migration. So this is something that's picking up in Canada. And honestly, from my perspective, I think it's basically inevitable. Like, we're in a crunch and every year will get a little bit worse. So, you know, if we're not motivated yet, we will be soon. In London, really cool thing, the city recently refined its definitions for native and non-native. So it used to be, if you were saying a species is native, you would basically say it's native to Ontario. And usually that was the rule of thumb. You just say it's native to Ontario. And if something was two kilometers over the border in Michigan, it was non-native. And it didn't matter if you were comparing a tree from like up by Thunder Bay to a tree in London, they would be native. And the one from London to the US from just Michigan there would be non-native. And that was a difficult system. So now they include a category called continentally native, which means it's a species native to our continent, but not native to London necessarily yet. So it recognizes that we are probably going to see within North America these shifts in ranges. And we shouldn't be treating necessarily a species from Indiana the same way we should be treating a species from England. Like it's from the same continent. It's going to be part of that shift. Maybe it's not so bad. This actually, if you guys recognize this flower, you'll see them a lot in summer. This is a catalpa tree. They're native to sort of mostly Florida and Georgia, but they will grow here now. And the expectation is that their, their range will move north. So by moving to this kind of definition of continentally native, this is now sort of considered more acceptable in our city. I want to stress that this does not mean trees from other continents are any better now. It's just if they're from North America. And actually, one of the weird challenges we're going to face is we kind of have to fit everything because we need to have space for the American species that are going to move north, but we also don't want to burn down our forests to make space for them. So we have to fit London's normal species mix, and we have to start finding ways to plant species from a bit of a warmer area. It's going to be really challenging to manage that in an effective way. So if in the end, if what we are doing now isn't enough, how do we do more faster than what we are doing now? Reforest London plants about 5,000 native trees and shrubs every year in parks in London and in other naturalization projects. If we were every year going forward to plant all our trees in species adapted to warmer climates, we started getting seed or stock, like I said, from Indiana, or New York, places like that, and we did 5,000 trees a year every year to the end of the century, we would have planted about 400,000 trees by the end. That would be about 6% of London's trees. If we work like crazy year after year for the better part of a century, we could shift maybe 6% of one's trees. That's a difficult position to be in. But there is actually one piece of good news I have to share today. It's that we have to recognize that the best tree planters are trees. A cottonwood tree can produce 1 million seeds. One cottonwood can produce a million seeds. So if we can start creating pockets of trees that are adapted to warmer climates, they can produce seed and start seeding themselves. We don't have to plant every tree that's adapted. We just have to make sure that the genetics are up here, that that DNA is available to start creating climate-adapted forests. Next is, can we find a way to dramatically increase our tree planting? So our organization uh, spent the better part of last year and a bit of the year before that um, going up to Wellington County, which has a really incredible program called the Green Legacy Program. And it just it continues to blow my mind. So they had a 150th anniversary back in like, oh, 2004, it's on my slide, sorry. And when they were, that year was coming around, the county was like, oh, we should do something special, we should do something special. And they knew this one tree grower, and he was like, oh, we should just grow 150,000 trees. And they said, yeah, and he went, oh, okay. So they had to find a way to do it. The county was very lucky. They had had a property donated to them by a farmer slash woodlot owner 
almost a century back, I think it was, and his only caveat was the property had to be used for something environmental or for conservation. So this, the county took the property, built a couple of greenhouses on it, and then did a partnership with the school board that the kids would come in and do the seeding and start growing trees with them. They have planted or distributed and distributed 150,000 trees a year since 2004. They are the lar single largest municipal tree planting operation in North America. And they're just like a little, I know, they're awesome. I'm like, go Wellington. I got to go tell the council how awesome they were. And they were just looking around like really confused, like, why are they so happy with us? I'm like, you have no idea. But they're fantastic. So we would love to do something like this in London if possible. Something like this could dramatically increase the number of trees we can plant a year, especially if we're able to do it in partnership with some of the rural townships around us. Ideally, in the long run, what would be awesome, and I recognize this is a little bit ironic coming on uh, just after the news about the 50 million tree program being cut last week, but what we'd love to see is a network of these kind of community tree nurseries where they're primarily driven by volunteers and our municipalities growing trees. And they could do it, they could provide a key role in climate change. They can collect seed and they could share it with communities to the north. So if we had a seed collecting operation here in London, we could give that seed to our partners in Ottawa and they could grow trees that are adapted and we could just keep doing that from communities to the south. It would enable us to grow trees past that little green Q-tip stage, like the little spruce tree I was showing, so that they'd be a bit more robust in the face of drought. And it could provide us a way to start looking for places to plant more climatically adapted trees so that those trees can plant the next generation of trees. So my pro another thing, why I think we should do this here, Londoners are already exceptional when it comes to tree planting. This is something our community does better than just about any other community our size. We could be a leader in this nationally. Climate change is often daunting because it's a war on so many fronts. And sometimes if you can pick one thing and do it well, that's a good place to start. Uh, and I think London could really spearhead this kind of initiative for our community. We are exploring with various partners in the city about whether or not we might be able to do a greenhouse growing project like that, which would be super exciting if we do. In the shorter term, you can of course volunteer. Um, you can plant trees in your own home. If you have space in your yard, please consider planting a tree. We're going to be doing a lot of free tree giveaways this spring, starting in late May. So if you want a free tree, you can just come get one from us. We'll be all over the community. Uh, and above all, and I cannot stress this enough, even though I'm a tree planting person, reducing emissions is the most important thing you can do. So in summary, all the key messages here. Climate change is a race. Trees don't have legs. And we're about to find out just how fast we can run. Thank you all. It's been a pleasure to present it to you.